I'm Alan Kogan. Join me as I tour the country tasting different whiskeys and discussing the craft of distillation with local distillers, whiskey lovers, and even those who are new to the culture of spirits. Welcome to The Kogan Conversation. In this episode, I traveled to the Ivy City neighborhood of Washington, D.C. to visit District Made Spirits. I had the honor of sitting down with their co-founder and CEO, Alex Laufer, who treated me to several samples and detailed the uniqueness of distilling whiskey in our nation's capital. Well, Alex, I'm here in District Made. Yes. Formerly 1-8 Distilling. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about you. And I know the branding is a little different and new, so... Right. Thanks for having me, of course. Of course. No, thanks for coming in, Alan. Um, so, yeah, uh, we we got our start um, a little over 10 years ago here. Uh, found a space in Ivy City in the district uh, and have been, you know, been here for in, in the building for 10 years. Uh, we started as 1-8 Distilling. Um, my partner in the business, Sandy Wood, uh, is an attorney. And it must have been uh, an influence of his con law class at American University here. Uh, so 1-8 refers to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of the provisions in there is the formation of the National Capital District. So uh, some of the language, you know, what Congress should do, 10 square miles, all that good stuff. Um, we actually have some of that on, uh, as wallpaper in our restrooms still to this day. Um, <laughs> So it was a very, very obscure nod to DC Pride. Um, and uh, we had started with different brands, uh, one of them being District Made. Originally, it was District Made Vodka. And a few years in, we extended that District Made name to uh, the, all of the core spirits that we make, uh, taking over from some of the other names. Our whiskeys began, as, for example, as Rock Creek, Rock Creek White Whiskey, and Unaged Rye, Rock Creek Rye, Rock Creek Bourbon. Right. So we, we think we simplified things a little bit. Uh, district made spirits doesn't require as much explanation as one eight distilling does. So, um, so yeah, that's that's the, the rebrand part. Uh, not not fun to go through the rebrand, <laughs> but it was important to have that good strong message going forward. Very cool. Well, so I I, I told you off off mic that I I just moved to the D.C. area the last mm -hmm. three years, and I, admittedly I have not gone around and done many distillery tours because I just one haven't had the time and. Sure. COVID was a thing. The yeah. majority of the time I've been out here, but uh, I I wanted to hit you up because I've heard of District Made before. I've had your bourbon before. I didn't know much about you. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm here now, and I hope you don't shame me for not having come earlier. No, no worries. No worries. <laughs> but um, I I'm curious about your background and what you got. What got you into distilling? What what yep. what is the driving force behind your craft? Yes. So for me, it's all about respecting what the farmers are doing, what they're growing, their grains, the terroir of the grain, mm. the varietal of the grain, and transforming that into uh, a delicious spirit, whether it's a vodka, gin, or, or whiskeys. Um, my background, I, uh, when I met Sandy, I was studying biology. Uh, I thought I was gonna go into ecology, uh, become a professor someday. Um, <laughs> I moved to San Francisco uh, after college and got to work in the biotech uh, community. Started with a couple of the bigger established companies and then um, 
found my niche uh, in production genomics. So I was doing a lot of things like high throughput DNA sequencing and that sort of thing, working for a few startup biotech companies, eventually transitioning to managing labs. Sure. Um, so it was an interesting career. I did it for 17 years, uh, brought me to Columbia University to help start up a, a lab and really cement the notion that I did not want to go for a PhD, <laughs> uh, but it was a great experience. Glad I did it. And it brought me to Rockville, Maryland, uh, working for a nonprofit research institute uh, called the J. Craig Venter Institute. Um, uh, that was always a, a great career. And I certainly learned a lot of things that apply to being a distiller. Um, but it was my other passions that really influenced me as uh, into becoming a distiller, I think. Um, I always loved to cook. Uh, I always loved to eat uh, well and drink well. You know, back in our college days, we were not drinking well. But over the years, uh, for me, it was, uh, I think, first scotch, really, uh, as far as whiskey goes. I really got into some single malts. Um, and, you know, that transitioned to bourbon only more recently, um, before coming into this industry. But um, I started with scotch and still love good single malts uh, and blends. Um, but, uh, you know, living in California, I was exposed to wine country, um, some early craft distilling, uh, the guys at Anchor Steam, unfortunately the brewery is no longer, but they're still making that old Potrero rye. They're still making some of those other spirits, um, Hangar One, making vodka and the St. George spirit line, interesting stuff going on over there. Uh, Charbet for brandies in Northern California, always really interesting stuff. Um, and it was happening earlier there than it was in our region. Um, you know, Sierra Nevada was my beer of choice. You know, sure. and it was old. It was there. There was only one Sierra Nevada then. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was that pale ale, uh, which was great. But really, for me, I really got into the idea of first of all consuming things that I I knew where they were from, where they were grown, where they were harvested, where they were fished, etc. I could walk the vineyards and then drink the wine that came from those grapes. I could uh, go to the farmer's market, get talking with the farmer. Um, I, I got really friendly with this guy that, that had uh, an olive grove. And mm. so he was making his own um, olive oils. And uh, he was harvesting the eggs from the chickens that roamed there and wow. just, just loved that. Um, and then I, I really got into the idea of that California cuisine idea, which is not unique to California. Certainly, it has its roots elsewhere, but just respecting the ingredient. Sure. Uh, Alice Waters, a chez panisse, will famously serve a piece of fruit that's perfectly ripe in season. Uh, this time of year, it might be a pear. Um, and she's not going to do anything to it. She's not going to cut it. Nothing. Just this is it. This is it. This is your course. Um, because she can't improve upon a perfect piece of fruit. Yeah. And I love that idea. And so I, you know, it was key to me coming into this business was to develop relationships with local farmers and work with them, uh, you know, to have them grow the varietals of grain that we wanted to work with um, and just really express that, that idea of terroir in our spirits. Do you think that adds a bit of quality to the actual taste or is, do you think it's more of a I don't want to say marketing grab because I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, that grain to bottle type of mm -hmm. relationship with the farmers. But 
is there something there to be said about the TLC, the extra love and care from the community around farmers and, and, and you know, the bottling of the, of the bourbon? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> when it comes to any of the spirits, there are many, many inputs of flavor yeah. to the final product. Um, but it all starts at the farm. Yeah. You know, there, there's going to be a lot of distillers out there that really might discount the farm. Uh, for them, it's the barrel. And hey, working with a great barrel, you know, for us, it's 18 month dry aged American white oak, char number three, that that's key. And we want obviously the quality there. Um, but for me, it, it really does start at the farm. Yeah. And the examples that I love, the scientist in me loves, there was a paper out of Ireland. Oh, it's gotta be about six, seven years ago now, maybe longer. Uh, where they they harvested barley in different regions in Ireland, brought it back, malted it, distilled it, analyzed it through HPLC and other means. And there's a whole new suite of compounds, depending just where it was grown. Uh, and that means there's different compounds, there's different flavor. Right. And um, Belvedere is an influential vodka for us. Uh, it is a rye vodka. Um, they are uh, from Poland, they work with a varietal called uh, Danko rye, mm. which in the States is grown further north of here, uh, usually in Pennsylvania and New York. Um, we use a different variety here called the Brutzi rye. Uh, but um, they harvested this rye in different regions in Poland. Same variety of rye, just different regions, brought it back, distilled it. And again, in, in, in Europe, you have to distill to over 96% alcohol to make vodka. And you can still taste the difference in those vodkas just based on where it was grown. So long answer to your question, is it more important? I don't think so, but it is important. Sure. Uh, there's, you know, there's other things that uh, are equally as important in influencing the flavor. But this is the one that I, I really stress is working with these farmers to grow great grains that are, in our case, a little, uh, a little older in style. It's not what everyone's using these days. Uh, most of our bourbon is distilled from commodity feed corn. It can wow. be GMO. It's it's yellow dent number two. Really exciting name. <laughs> but that's not where bourbon started, right? Bourbon started. People were distilling the grain that they were growing to eat. Right. And if they had a good year, they had an excess of surplus of grain. It's not going to go to waste. Best way to preserve it is ferment it, distill it, and bottle it up or, or leave it in a barrel right. in the old days. Um, so, you know, corns that are these days developed to feed cattle and pigs and everything, that that's not where it started. So we wanted to find a varietal of corn that was, was an older food corn. So in our case, our bourbon starts with uh, a white Hickory King corn. It was developed in Virginia, so it's very true to our region. Uh, in the 1880s and could very well have made its way into some early bourbons uh, back then, pre-prohibition. Um, it's a great varietal. It was used, to, it was primarily consumed as hominy um, or grits. And uh, it's a beautiful wide kernel. Um, does it have the starch yield of your commodity feed corn? No, right. but it's a flavor coming off the still. It was the mouthfeel, the texture, this creaminess of the distillate that captured us, wow. flavor and, and the mouthfeel. So we really uh, were excited that our farmer 
brought it to us. We didn't originally know anything about it, uh, but our farmers, Vint and Pepsi, were growing it. And uh, yeah, that became our bourbon corn um, within the first year of distilling here. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun story. It's a fun corn. I love it. There's a yellow variety we've tried as well. We've tried some other varietals like a Bloody Butcher is a great uh, deep mahogany kernel. Um, but we keep coming back to that, that white hickory king. That's one of the th nuances of especially bourbon, but just whiskey in general that people don't even think about the different types of corn that sure. might change. Uh, yeah. How much research did you spend, you know, prior to selecting that, that kernel that like, hey, this is what we want? For me, I, uh, it was more important initially to work with local farm. And that was the key. That's cool. So we didn't work with that varietal of corn initially. Um, but once it became provided to us, then of course we researched it and, and went you know, into more. Um, it's possible that we could change our mind down the road and, and ask the farmers to plant something else, but we're really happy with it uh, for now. And yeah, it's been a great corn. We've, we did more research on the rye because really we're, we're very much focused on the rye. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. I know we're in the DC area yep. and uh, you've been here for about 10 years, you said. Yep. Uh, what, what is that relationship like with farmers around the area? Is everything as, as sourced as it can be from the DMV area or is it like, well, how does that relationship look like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, when it comes to uh, cooperages, it's not that close. Right. There are more and more cooperages, but um, so we are going a little further afield. Uh, but the two farms we work with, we've been working with Lands End Farm in Chestertown, Maryland, just over on the Eastern Shore. It's a beautiful farm. I've been there a couple times. Uh, it's on uh, the tip of a peninsula in the Chester River, and it's where the river is very wide, close to the bay. And uh, it is 100% uh, organic. Uh, and one of the ways they can stay organic is they don't have to worry about cross-pollination since corn is wind-pollinated with other farms because they have water around them on three oh, sides. Sure. Uh, so it's a beautiful spot. And, you know, it's been great to work with them. Um, we work with them for that corn uh, as well as uh, our hard red winter wheat called Redeemer um, that we get from them as well. Initially, we were also getting some rye from them, but uh, we outgrew that farm and we actually were approached by uh, Craig out in Culpeper, Virginia at Fairview Cattle and Grain and he was growing the Abruzzi rye that we really wanted to work with because that's the varietal that's been here for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the pre-prohibition Maryland rye uh, was distilled from that Abruzzi rye varietal. And uh, we were really happy that Craig was growing it. For him, it was a cover crop because oh. uh, rye is planted in this region uh, the end of November, early December, checks the soil from erosion over the winter and then in Craig's case, and in many farmers' cases, they plow that back into the soil before planting corn or soy in the early spring. So he was doing that, um, but he decided to see some through to harvest, and he actually called us up. So we've been working with him for most of the time. Uh, we've been distilling as well, over six years now. Very cool. Yeah. I, I, love, I love talking to like smaller craft distillers like yourself, who, one, you get to experiment a lot with what you're mm -hmm. using, and also you have a lot more of a, a, a this built relationship with local farmers and i'm sure you could probably give your spent grain to local farms or, or whatever you i wish i did okay to, yeah yeah i didn't mean to out you no 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 <laughs> no problem you know it's a, it comes up all the time uh in certain cases when we interned with smooth ambler uh back in the old days they were on a much smaller scale then 
Um, and they had a great video that they had put up on YouTube and probably can still find it. Their spent grain, liquid grain, was going uh, to a local cattle ranch. Oh. And I've never seen a video of cows running that fast. That truck was coming in and they knew they were going to get some tasty spent grain. Uh, you know, liquid varietal is probably still about half a percent ABV. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they were going to get their buzz on and yeah. enjoy that. Um, yeah. So I wish we had that relationship again. Being an urban distillery is, is a little tougher for that. Um, but future goal is to invest in uh, centrifuge and um, a grain dryer. So okay. then we could uh, send out a, a dry product that would be a much, obviously, lighter weight, be more efficient, uh, less of a carbon footprint to to drive that, haul that away. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I, obviously I knew that, but when you said urban, obviously you're right here in the middle of D.C. Yeah. So it's a very... Yep. How, does that play into, I mean, what, what makes it unique for you as a distiller here in the, especially the nation's capital, right? Where you're kind of smack dab in the middle of action or inaction. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, versus places that are out in rural Virginia or whatever that actually have like an expansive, you know, plot of land to work with. Yeah. I mean, we, we aren't a, a farm to bottle. Right. Uh, grain to glass, we like to say, but um, so it's a little more work, certainly, uh, to get you know, our grain in here, but it's, it's not too far. You know, it's, it's really quite a, uh, short drive to Chestertown or to, uh, Culpeper. Um, but yeah, being in the nation's capital is, is fun spot to be distilling. It's a little bit of the wild west out here. We <laughs> really have, haven't had the hurdles. Um, and we weren't the first distillery to open our, our former, uh, neighbors here in Ivy city, new Columbia distillers made a green hat gin. They also made a arrived briefly um, before they were unfortunately purchased by MGP. I think it, it probably worked out well for them, but uh, <laughs> they, they're they no longer in the district. Uh, but anyway, John and Michael there were fantastic folks, great friends, and um, they were able to get the laws changed to allow distilleries to open and do business here in the district, which has been great. Uh, we didn't have the issues that you have in some control states and things like that. Gotcha. Uh, so the district's been pretty good for that. Um, and then, you know, it's we're a little bit off the beaten path here in Ivy City, but uh, we do have a fun neighborhood, with some good restaurants. There are three other distilleries and two breweries in operation. Short walk from us. Sure. So it's a becomes a fun way to spend a Saturday afternoon. I was gonna, <laughs> well, I, I mean, when I came here, uh, the, the space is bigger than I thought it was off mm -hmm. the street. And you have this beautiful venue for just tastings and hanging out and having cocktails and whatever so yeah. are you an actual i'm not sure what dc law is are you a, a bar bar or is it only tastings so what yeah so we can operate as a, a you know when we're open to the public we do have to primarily feature our spirits in our cocktails sure uh if it's a private event we can serve beer and wine you know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh but otherwise it's our cocktails our, our spirits and the cocktails um which I get it, makes sense. Yeah. So we're not a real a regular bar. Um, our business license is actually a deli because oh. uh, the city doesn't really know what to do with us even still. But um, but that's all right. Oh, that's... Um, so we do, we operate on the weekends uh, with the tasting room open for cocktail service and, um, um, you know, special events. Of course. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the distillation. I know it's, mm -hmm. it's that, that craft to be so interesting and, and being a craft, a small distiller, and you said it's a two-man operation right now. Yes. How much do you enjoy having your hands on the actual product? And rather uh, than having these big, large steel 
you know, chrome columns of, you know, Jim Beam Corporation. Nothing against them, but, yeah. you know, there's a little bit more TLC going on here. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's we are intimately involved with our every aspect of the production. Uh, we're doing it all here. We, um, you know, I love that work. I love the routine. Uh, I love different parts of the production for different spirits. Um, you know, it's there's nothing like the mash, the smell of the mash, the aroma for rye in particular. Our rye, we do use a little corn of the mash bill, Maryland style, but we go heavy on the malted rye. Ah. And that just aroma, it's 29% malted rye. And uh, it just smells so good when that's going on. Um, for the vodka, my favorite part is is tasting. I'm not drinking now. It's a sam <laughs> sample for quality right off the still. At over 190 proof, there's something about that flavor. It's so sweet at that proof. It's crazy. Um, gin is wild coming off the still too because it different botanicals will will send different notes over the course of a gin distillation. So sure. it's, it's just wild like that. And then for me, what I love most about bourbon is sampling different barrels and uh, coming up with that blend and going back and forth changing out one barrel out of you know our we're, we're a huge distillery here we we our, our standard size is six barrels so <laughs> but one barrel has a huge impact on the final uh so that's a fun process just tasting what could have been those barrels could have been filled all at the same time yeah uh you know four plus years ago and tasting what they've become and sometimes the wild differences between them right it's just it's just wild to me. That sounds like you have a terrible job. Yeah. <laughs> it's the hardest I've ever worked, uh, but I love it. You know, it really is just so much fun being hands-on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How much do you enjoy experimenting? I'm sure because you have a lot more free reign to do what you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's fun. I have experimented a little bit uh, and I enjoy it, but it's mostly been something that I've given uh, the you know, the ability to, and the opportunities to the distillers that have worked with me. It's always been an amazing team here and everyone's bringing with them their experiences, uh, their knowledge, their palate. Uh, and it's something that I wanted to encourage and have always encouraged. We've had great people work here that have gone on to distill at other distilleries uh, globally. We had a distiller from Ireland who went back to Ireland <laughs> and is making great Irish whiskey. Uh, we had, and for her, she was all about gin. Oh. So I have a, a cabinet full of distillates of different weird things, seaweed and Christmas pudding. And, you know, it was just, <laughs> it, it was great to give her that opportunity to, to play and come up with a, potentially a, a new gin for us. Um, so it's really been something that, yes, I've done some experimentation, um, but I've, I've encouraged uh, the rest of our team to, to really uh, work in that area. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think with that, we should, uh, we should pour some and, Great. Cheers to great craft whiskey. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so yeah. what do we have here? Yeah, so I, I brought a range of whiskeys. Um, I thought we'd start with something that we don't sell anymore. Uh, and that is our original Rock Creek white whiskey. So okay. it is our, what originally began as our rye mash bill. And uh, we, we made a little change along the way. Uh, in our early days, you know, we were a small team and 
we wanted the input and I, I pour heavy here, so <laughs> no obligation to finish what I pour. Um, it's a good problem. Yeah. So here's Thank that you. Rock Creek White. Um, so when we first started, it was basically the same mash bill, which is heavy on the rye, uh, on that malted rye with about 14% corn. Mm. Now we brought it over to, yeah, we were, we were working with lots of great bartenders because we, we appreciated their palates and we wanted their input. So um, one of the bartenders is uh, Gina Tursavani. She has a couple of bars in the area and um, she tasted it and she wanted that proof to go up. Gotcha. So she decided to go, she, she recommended, I don't recall actually if she recommended an well, We went from 80 to 100. She also recommended taking out the corn. Oh. And so this is 100% rye. It's 60% raw grain, that Abruzzi rye, and 40% malted rye. So really heavy on the malt. Interesting. Yeah. Well, cheers. Cheers. I haven't had a sip of that in a while. Oh, that's good. What's that proof at? 100. 100, okay. Yeah. Oh. It's fun. Part of me wishes I still bottled this more regularly. <laughs> have you thought about going back to it? I have. Everyone says don't do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Market, the market's weird. Yeah. With White Dog. Yeah. But so one of the things I love about doing this too is that I, I a lot of places pride themselves on sampling their White Dog, not selling it, mm -hmm. but showing during tours that, you know, if you put crappy new make in a barrel, oh, the yeah. barrel will not make it better. Nope. So yep. this is why this is fun for people who aren't whiskey drinkers. Right. Try some white lightning and it's like, oh, this is interesting. Yep. You think it's just turpentine. No, no, no. It's great. Yeah. I yeah. could see where the corn could take away from that rye. Yeah. I think corn distillate can be on the tougher side. Mm. I didn't really want to sell a white dog bourbon. Uh, I think it's it's rough and needs a little bit more time in oak. Sure. Um <laughs> And uh, our rye, on the other hand, was was always great as a younger rye. Now it's gotten up to the same age as our bourbon. They're both over four years in the barrel now, uh, standard releases. But um, I loved it at two. Whereas the bourbon, I didn't love as much at two. I love it a lot more now at four. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah, it's fun. You get a lot of the esters that come through distillation. Yep. It's a very fruity. You know, it, it takes the place of, uh, you know, an unaged rum or even a, you know, tequila. You could do margaritas with this. You could do daiquiris with this, you know. Um, but yeah, I haven't sipped it in, a, in quite a few months. One thing I'm learning with rye, too, especially with 100% rye, that that rye spice and that all spice really, you have to kind of train your brain to know that that's not the alcohol. Right. Because a lot of people think that, oh, that sharp, spicy right. note, is this is just a hot whiskey. No, yeah. it's the rye flavor, yeah. and that this is, and this is the the rye from Virginia that you were talking about. Uh, so yeah, I think we were already working with Craig, and we were still releasing this. It's quite possible. Okay, I have to go back to the batch on this bottle, but sure, sure. Yeah, it could be rye still grown in uh, in Chestertown. Um, yeah, very cool. Yeah, it was a fun release for us. It was great to have a product in the early days with our vodka and then the gin. But uh, it wasn't a big seller. And when we started releasing the aged dry, that's when we, we stopped sure. releasing this. Cool. Well, fantastic. 
I could sip that all day. Yeah, thank you. No, <laughs> it's a fun one. Yeah, so I didn't really get into the malt so much. Of course, we love our rye that, you know, traditionally people will use malted barley. But because we were so interested in, in rye, um, I sought out a smaller, more craft malt house. Uh, we work with Riverbend. They're mm -hmm. down in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I heard of them. Um, initially, most of their malt was going to breweries. Mm -hmm. And they, one of the beers that New Belgium makes uh, is very heavy on the malted rye. So I knew they had a good amount of malted rye and wanted to try it. But I also heard that uh, Corsair had tried them, and they d used to do a an unaged rye mm. that was even heavier on the malted rye. I think it was 80% malted rye. They called it Rye Moon, and um, they, you know, I just loved that. And they had tried working with Riverbend. They didn't end up staying with them because of the cost. The Riverbend's more expensive, but um, gotcha. Uh, I love the flavor of this malted rye, and it's in everything we make, all of our coarse beers. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, so we have it unaged. Yes. Now we're going to move into the aged stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, so we should... Uh, well, we're going to go with cask strength rye, so I'm going to save that, and we'll switch gears to bourbon then. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll go with our standard release of our bourbon. So again, over four years in the barrel. Every batch is... Six barrels, four of them being our high rye mash bill. Okay. And then two of them are the weeded mash bill. Mm. So that hickory king corn is in both. And in the high rye, it's rye and malted rye. In the weeded, it's the uh, redeemer wheat and malted barley, more traditional mash bill. Okay. So again, heavier on the, that rye. And that corn just from the get-go is is different than most bourbons that I've had. Yeah. It's not nearly as sweet a bourbon. Yeah, that doesn't drink like a bourbon to me. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah. I mean, we're in DC. We're not in Kentucky. No, well. So, you know, I'm gonna do things different. I'm gonna play with my mash bills and you're not using limestone water. That's true. Yes. Now we are using good old Potomac that is filtered through a reverse osmosis system. <laughs> to be very clear. Yes. But um, but yeah, no, we don't have the limestone aquifer. And I, I get that. That's that's gonna be defining of that that soft water is really gonna be defining about a lot of bourbon. Yeah, right. Whether that's Kentucky or West Virginia has the same aquifer, so our friends at Smooth Ambler have that similar effect. Uh, but yeah. Um, and For me, it's not about the water. Right. No, I, I agree with that. <laughs> and what's the mash on this? Yeah, so it gets complicated. Okay. So um, since it's two-thirds one mash bill and one-third the, the weeded, uh, we do put the mash bills on the back label of all our bottles. So we're very open about that. It's 58% hickory king corn. 16% is the Abruzzi rye. 8% is that hard red winter wheat, the uh, Redeemer wheat. 12% malted rye, 6% malted barley. Wow. So each one of the, the two mash bills separately would be 58% corn. Uh, it would be 24% grain and 18% malt. Okay. It's just combined 
where it gets complicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the the idea bit there was, you know, we wanted to make both styles bourbon because we liked both styles. We we like a high rye bourbon, which is a more traditional bourbon, and yep. and these days the the weeded bourbons have become more and more popular. People are more interested in the you know a little less spice perhaps in what they're drinking in a bourbon um we never thought we would blend them uh, but when we were ready getting ready for our first release it really was uh my my uh assistant distiller and then uh, distiller and and blender steven corrigan um he i don't know if he did it on purpose or not but he decided to pour one in the other i think it's a reese's peanut butter <laughs> cup moment and <laughs> He he nailed it. You, you got know. your bourbon, my bourbon. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, wow. it was uh, it was a fun day where we, we were just going back and forth, tasting blends of different barrels, and then finally he just came to me and was like, "This is it." Yeah, like, yeah. What did you do? This is totally different than anything you've brought to me so far. Wow. Um, so yeah, um, really, really happy with that blend. But doing them separately does give us the flexibility to release one or the other whether that's going to be as a private cask at cask strength, or as we'll try next, our bottled and bond, uh, we decided just to use one match. Okay. So um, it's fun to have that ability um, so that we can, we can still continue to blend, but do one or the other. Yeah. Well, I will say I, I'm a bigger fan of a high rye bourbon. Um, mm -hmm. My go-to that I'll always have on the shelf, one because it's cheap and accessible is Old Grandad. Oh yeah. The high rye mash bill. Yep. Great in a cocktail. Yep. Great by itself. Yep. Uh, it's 20 bucks. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate craft distilleries that are doing more high rye bourbons. I think there's a lot, there's a misconception a lot in the market that, well, bourbon is corn. Mm -hmm. And well, yeah, 51% corn at least, right? Right. But that rye spice adds so much complexity to the bourbon that I think people miss out on because they're like, oh, it's spicy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love this. Right. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I think the... The corn being a bit drier, less sweet, makes the the overall bourbon allows that that rye spice to shine through yeah, a yeah. bit more. Right. Um, you know, it, it's a uh, there. The, yeah, fifty one percent is the minimum, and we go fifty eight percent. So yeah. we're pretty close to the minimum there, uh, allowing those other grains to come through. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So next is the bottle and bond, huh? Yes. Yes. So just the high rye mash bill. Going from the four-year minimum, these were all uh, seven-year. Oh. So, love the history of the Bottled and Bond Act. Um, and it was, you know, it was all right, whoop, spilling some Bottled and Bond on the, <laughs> on the barrel there. Appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the, yeah, the, you know, it all came from, from the floor of the Capitol here in dc you know going back uh 130 ish years sure something yeah not quite 30. but um well that's way different on the nose yes so just the high rye and then you know three more years in oak it's that oak is going to be a bigger player yeah it really comes through and you're using number three char yes primarily we have played around with um some number fours some number twos okay um, but yeah, we we do like number three. I think going to number four for us 
you're going to have so much more of an oak impact in a shorter time uh, that allowing the bourbon to get to, you know, seven plus eight years old or whatever down the road, um, you know, going with the higher chars, it's going to be fewer barrels that you're going to, we're going to want right. at that age. Right. Um, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's so different. Yep. Yeah. None of the wheats, none of the malted barley. It was only three barrels. That side by side is smart. Yeah, it's fun to see. Yeah. Yeah. This drinks more like a bourbon to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but without those the barley and the wheat. Right. It really shines through as a, a true high rye bourbon. Right. Yeah. And that age statement too. Is it is it a blend of minimum seven years or is it all they're all so- all seven, uh, one of the parts of the Baldwin Bond Act today, that's still true, is they all have to be from the same season. Gotcha. So I can't blend, let's say, seven and six year ah. bourbon. It all has to be the same. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so the Baldwin Bond Act, that's that's one of the things. All has to be you know, distilled, aged, and bottled at the same facility, so it could never be a sourced bourbon, for mm. example, and be called bottled and bond. And then, of course, exactly 100 proof. Right, right. Yeah. I'm sure the federal agents are here watching you pour each bottle. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's funny that the headquarters, of course, of the ATF is literally less than a mile down the street from us on New York Avenue and, and North Cap there. Um, they've never been here in official capacity, although there has been a few agents that have come through and introduced themselves <laughs> to do a tasting and a tour or just have a cocktail. Yeah. Undercover. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. That's good. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yeah, we've been doing a bottled and bond release uh, every year for the last few years. And so our first bottled and bond release was at the minimum of four years in age. Right. That's another aspect of the bottled and bond. Next year, we did a five year, next year, six year, and last year, or earlier this year, rather, the seven year. It always, sometimes it concerns me when I see people try to do, uh, you know, seven plus year old bourbons, because sometimes that barrel just takes over. Yes. And this is a pleasant amount of toast. Mm-hmm. That doesn't interfere with the actual sweetness of the of the of the bourbon, right? You've I'm sure you've had whiskeys where it's like, oh, this is just barrel note. Oh yeah, um, and it you know, it sells at a premium because it's ten plus year old bourbon. It's an investment, but mm-hmm. this doesn't taste like that. This is this is it. It tastes like a a, a smoother four year old bourbon, which is right. I mean that as a compliment. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's true. I mean, and again for us, we we so much uh, focus on that raw material, that new make whiskey flavors, uh, you know, over time in a barrel will diminish. Right. And the oak will take over exactly what you're saying. And it, it is the more and more rare barrel that we want to let age longer. Right. Some we want to save because we we think we, we love where it is at cask, for example, uh, on its own. Mm-hmm. It's just a unique unicorn. Right. And that's going to be its own release. Some we feel aren't ready at four year and we want to give it time. And then there's most of our barrels, which at four to five year are really hitting their stride. Right. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting article. I'm, I'm blanking on the author's name uh, a couple of years ago now who interviewed many of the, the big Kentucky bourbon distillers. And they all 
said that their their sweet spot in age was was four to eight. Yep, and uh, and that's that is true. Uh, rye, I think, probably a little younger. Sure. Um, we are going to taste an eight year old rye in a minute, but <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, it, you know it's a spirit that that really does well. You know, it, it all depends, of course, on the oak and on your aging climate. You know, we're in D.C., which is real similar to Kentucky and Tennessee. Yeah. We have hot and humid summers. We have cold winters. The barrels are in our rickhouse, the end of our building there, which is not heated and it's not cooled. Right. So, um, you know, we get up to 90 plus degrees in the summer inside, and especially when we're running a boiler and mashing and distilling. Uh, and we, you know, get down to the low fifties in the winter inside. So it's a good climate, I think for, for traditional whiskey, Yeah. not to, you know, dismiss other climates. Obviously we're making bourbon in all 50 States now. And, uh, you know, you can make bourbon in Florida. You can make bourbon in Wyoming. Right. You know? Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what, you know, back in the day when bourbon first came to the market, you know, Kentucky was obviously, well, New Orleans originally, but mm-hmm. Kentucky became kind of the creme to the creme of like the, the climate, the area, the, the limestone water, et cetera. But you have the analyzation now of in 2023, all of the different climates that are happening, like Florida versus Maine versus right. Alaska. Yep. Like Alaska's climate is probably closer to Scotland. Sure. So yeah. they're going to have 25 plus year old bourbon that tastes like a four year old bourbon, potentially. I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah kind of interesting right right right. absolutely yeah and uh you know there's there's triple eight distilling on nantucket island oh yeah very much an islay type influence there yes doing yes. some great american single malt yeah um uh, yeah so all right what's next Listen. all right all right moving <laughs> on um we will switch gears back to rye Let's see if i can pour without spilling this time so our <laughs> district made straight rye Again, also over four in the barrel. And uh, I didn't mention the proof. The bourbon was 95 and this is 94. Okay. You know, we could always fill more bottles if it was uh, bottled at a lower proof. Uh, But this is where we feel we like it the most. You know, 80 proof is the minimum. And that's where our vodka is. Okay. (laughs) And that's pretty standard for vodka. Right. there isn't anything else we've released at 80 proof. <laughs> we just go up from there. So. Ooh. Oh yeah, again, minimum four year, char three. That mash bill really high on that malted rye, 29% malted rye, 14% corn, and that Abruzzi rye. Oh, that's nice. That rye is really well rounded off with the that fourteen percent corn. That sweetness is yeah. just a little bit in there. Yep, I, just a touch. It's on the low end of the Maryland style. Yeah, yeah. Uh, rye uh, Maryland style rye had more corn usually mm-hmm. um, versus Pennsylvania style with none or very very little. Right, right. Yeah, that's a. See, I, the, the more the more I do this, the more I think I, I'm I'm a I'm a rye guy. I, yeah. I love bourbon. Sure. I, I told you before I love Scotch, but 
rye to me is just there's so much complexity there that is mm -hmm. an unsung hero in the whiskey dumb yep and i don't really know why it, I, bourbon always sells because i think bourbon just has the marketing Absolutely. everyone knows what bourbon is yeah not many people know what rye is yeah so yeah i don't know why historically that bourbon came back after prohibition but rye did not yeah um you know uh, before prohibition the number one producing state was kentucky of course already <laughs> number two was pennsylvania and number three was maryland and pennsylvania and maryland were, were rye and those states we, we've come back i mean we're not in maryland here in dc where we're really close so <laughs> um we uh you know and, and there's more and more rye being produced which is great uh you know it was wasn't that long ago where you had to work to find more than just a couple of bottles maybe old overholt nothing wrong with old overholt that's plenty good um and maybe a couple others but now it's great to be a part of bringing back rye to you know it's it was the original american whiskey this is what we drank once right. you know once uh once the revolution happened and we couldn't get a hold of uh molasses and make rum <laughs> we switched to making rye and uh, uh yeah i mean your listeners will probably know from your previous episode over at mount vernon you know washington was a huge distiller of rye yeah and uh, it was all happening you know right in our region here in the dmv and we love to be a part of it and, yeah. and throw our our rye in the ring <laughs> well i know and, and kind of going back to what you said in the, in the beginning of the conversation you, you had mentioned that part of your branding was really focusing on rye Yes. So tell me more a little bit about that because now we're in the yeah. rise and we have a couple yes. more to taste, but yep. you know, rye not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now for us, it's it really is uh, first and foremost flavor. Yeah, you know, we just love the flavor of rye, and um, we love the history. It's it's kind of a more, uh, you know, it's true to our our roots as Americans, but also you know, it it came from Europe, just like most of our are things and that's what they were distilling there too um i think it's coming back in europe as well which is great sure um but uh here we we just love it for the flavor we love that spice and it's a it's a more sustainable spirit it's not your primary food crop mm -hmm. that's going to be wheat uh in the old days and you know your rye was your backup and you could still get plenty of nutrition from it but if you didn't need to eat it, again, to preserve it, you were going to distill it and uh, and enjoy it that way. And we love that that history. Uh, so why not continue with it? It's a very sustainable crop. It does well. Uh, it's hardy. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't require the inputs that some other grains do. Right. Um, you know, uh, we yeah we love we love the rye. So it was, it's really our our primary grain and everything but the bourbon. Uh, most of our, you know, even our vodka and gin is primarily rye. Wow. And, uh, and of course the rye whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, this is a great, I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but a, a great benchmark rye. Mm. Very, very, almost a masterclass of what rye can be. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's, I, I can only take some credit and really for me, it's, it's the farm. Yeah. The farm and the malt house. 
because so much is that that malted rye. Yeah. Well, and you said that a, a bunch of times, and I really appreciate that. That's why. That's why I'm here. You, these 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 all come from, you know, local farmers who are doing their trade. Yes. And you're doing your trade. Right. And it's a symbiotic relationship, making a great product. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it taste better. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I like to think that the farmers like to work with me before, you know, <laughs> the farm in Chestertown, Land's End, it was mostly they were growing grain, organic grain to feed organic chickens. Ah. Uh, Craig in Culpepper is also a rancher. He was growing his corn and soy to feed his cattle. Mm. Uh, and that rye, he decided to let grow to harvest. Um I think maybe it's more fun to work with the distiller. I don't know. <laughs> I certainly try to help them out with a few bottles here. And there. I was going to say, I'm sure they have a, a good relationship that way. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. So what, All do we, right. what do we have next? The the final sample, although, you know, I have many other things here, but at least the final one I brought out now is our latest release. Just came out this month. Cask Strength Rye. Uh, over eight years in the battle, barrel. Single barrel, we got a... Let me read number here, 158 bottles. Wow. That's it uh, out of this one. Uh, it was the 32nd barrel we ever filled. Um, so it's going back over eight years. Wow. Um, and went up in proof in their early days, we were filling at the upper end of the range. We've since scaled back to closer to 115. Sure. In the early days, you know, the, the most you can fill a barrel is at 125. This was 125. It went up to 136.6. Mm. Hence, I brought out a little water here. Yeah. Um, I like mine with a little water. I mean, cask strength is fun to release because, uh, you know, it allows the consumer to enjoy at the proof they want to enjoy. Right. When I add a lot of water, by all means. If it's a hot summer day, you want to put that on the rocks, by all means. I never tell anyone how to drink. No. Enjoy it the way you like it. Yeah, good whiskey is a whiskey you enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I always suggest sampling it as it is out of the bottle. Yep. But by all means, add water after. <laughs> it's yeah. 136 proof. That's <laughs> it's up there. I will say, I, I and maybe this is just me, and, and I've, I've actually learned this from a couple of distillers I've talked to, that there's this new thing in the market with uh, the younger generations called proof heads. Hmm. People love cast strength. Yep. Maybe it's just because you get a b bigger bang for your buck. <laughs> oh, yeah. Getting the buzz, but absolutely. I love cast strength. I think there's more flavor in the alcohol when you have a higher proof. Yeah. No, so. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's it's a fun way to consume it. Um, you're not you're not drinking it at my last rye at 94 proof. Where we decided we liked it. You can drink it. You can add enough water to bring this to 94 if you want, or bring it down to 80, or bring it down lower, or add less water and bring it to 120. It's it's really, the cask strength allows the, the consumer to drink it how they like it. Right. Exactly. Right. Am I going to cocktail with this? No, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> it would make an interesting cocktail. Don't, but put, it, don't put it in your Coke. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> so yeah, so our oldest release to date, over eight years. Well, cheers. Cheers. I mean, it's hot. It's hot, but there's a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah. Is this the same mash as the previous rye? Yes. Yeah, the mash bill has tweaked maybe 1% in one direction or another. Okay. Uh, over the years. Yeah. And mostly in that first year. 
Yeah. Man, that age really brings out that sweetness. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we are getting a lot of sweetness in our whiskeys from the barrel. Right? Yeah. There's, there's wood sugars that during the charring are going to be caramelized. Mm -hmm. And they're going to bring that into the whiskey over time. Um, yeah. I love that we are looking at the chemistry in the barrel more and more. Right. Um, a lot of that research is being done by the bigger bourbon houses in the States anyway. Uh, and we're not seeing it published yet, but you know, <laughs> I hope it, it becomes, it comes out more and more, but I love that we are looking at the chemistry in the barrel now. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of places too that are experimenting with uh, putting toasted chips to mingle and float in the whiskey inside the barrel too. Yes. Which sometimes, sometimes is good. Sometimes adds way too much wood flavor for me. Yeah. But yeah. no, this is fantastic. As, as, a, as a cast strength, eight-year-old rye. Oof. Yeah. Thank you. That's, that's what I, that's, <laughs> that's the word I can come up with. Yeah. Wow. Yep. I love that color too. It's very dark. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Char three for uh, eight years. Yeah. <laughs> Brings a lot of color. We don't add anything to any of our spirits. Good. Um, you know, no caramel color in the whiskeys, <laughs> no sugar or, or glycerin in the vodkas, which if your listeners don't know, that's pretty commonly done. <laughs> but no, we yes, don't add anything. Wow. Just as it is. Yeah, I am going to add just a couple drops of water just to see how it opens oh, up. Oh, of course. Yeah, no. I mean, ultimately, adding water to a high proof alcohol is a chemical reaction. Uh, the only time that I do it at a great scale is when I have vodka coming off my still at better than 190 proof, I don't like leaving a tank around the distillery at 190 proof because it's basically a huge bomb. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Bad. I do proof that down quickly, down to 120. And then all the other proofing I do is much more gradual uh, before bottling. Um, but that being said, you can measure the increase in temperature when you add a lot of water to spirit at a great scale. Now we're adding a few drops to our glass. We're not going to measure that that difference, but it is happening. Right, right. Uh, so we are changing the chemistry in our glass by diluting. Um, ultimately, we like to refer to it as as opening it up, right? It, it really... The flowering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you can, you can taste more that alcohol burn at the high proof doesn't uh, necessarily, I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be minimized when we add water. So you, you, it doesn't overpower some of the other flavors in right. the whiskey. Right. So yeah, I, my, my father-in-law, I love him. Not a big bourbon or rye drinker. He wanted to taste this recent release. He was in town last week and I'm like, okay, Howard, you're, you're going to like this, but let's add some water and put it on a couple of rocks. Once those those ice cubes melted, he was really happy with it at uh, much lower proof than, than one thirty six. Wow! Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And you said this is a one fifty a one fifty eight bottles. Yeah, that's that's what we got out of this. Wow! This particular barrel. That's a that's an exclusive. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to be around too long. Um, we aren't distributing any of this, uh, so it's only available here at the Destroy. But we also do offer some, uh, you know online oh, of course so not not it can't be shipped to every state but um yeah, yeah. well I, we've tasted all these whiskeys which are fantastic and i appreciate it but i'm yeah. curious 
what's in store next? What can people look forward to? What are some of the, the, the I don't want to say secrets, but what are the things that you're looking forward to? You know, you have a, you have a, a, a 10 year cast strength ride coming. <laughs> well, yeah, give us a couple of years. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, we, we definitely, uh, Def, definitely have been saving some barrels for further aging. So there will be some older releases, older than eight coming up. Um, our next release will be a uh, fun one that uh, Stephen, who I mentioned earlier, came up with a few years ago. It's our bourbon liqueur. Mm. Uh, we call it the golden hour. So we take some of the sourced bourbon that we've been focusing on the bourbon we distilled. But in this case, it's, it's a sourced bourbon. It's actually 12 years old which is ridiculous to use in a liqueur. Um, but we had some fun with it. We, we finished it first in an Oloroso sherry cask. Then we finished it in a cask that previously was finishing bourbon for our Untitled Whiskey's 3, which is a coffee finish, and 12, chocolate finish. So it's a blend of those finishes after the sherry. Then uh, we infuse it with uh, clover honey, um, just enough. The minimum for a liqueur is 5%, and yep. we keep it to 5%. We add uh, turmeric, cardamom, and cinnamon. Mm. So it's a spice bomb, just enough sweet, and we still release it at 92 proof. The liqueurs are much, usually much lower than 80, but we keep it up <laughs> 92. So uh, Golden Hour has been kind of a cult hit here at the distillery for the last few years, and we're excited about this batch. Um, so that'll be out in probably about a week or so. Wow. Uh, it's nothing new. It's the latest iteration. Every year it's a year older, uh, but it's it's a fun one. It's great uh, in eggnog when the season is right, uh, in a hot toddy as things start oh, to get I'm cooler. Sure. I'm sure. Uh, it doesn't need much. It makes it old fashioned with, I, I don't add any more sweets to it. I just hit it with a drop of, um, a drop or two of bitters and and go like that. So yeah, the golden hour will be next. Uh, we do have some other fun uh, whiskeys aging that we haven't released. We haven't released any of our our single malt. Yeah. And we've done quite a lot of single malt over the years. We have eight-year-old single malt now, or just about eight. And um, let's see. Uh, yeah, we'll probably bring back some of the wheat whiskey. We released a barrel last year at Cask. That was a lot of fun. Um, apple brandy, we've released some before. We'll, we'll definitely bring that back. We have a few barrels aging. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's the golden hour I'm interested in. That sounds really good. Yeah. Well, I can give you a preview. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. Well, Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me Thanks here so. at the distillery. Yeah. I always love to do it here in person and, and taste the actual product because the craft that you do is is, is so hands-on and, and, and intimate and, and wonderful to hear you talk about how enthusiastic you are about it. Oh, thank you. So that's uh, that's cool to hear from you, and I appreciate you coming on. And uh, I'll I'll be back to hang out. I'll bring my wife. We can. Oh, please do. Yeah, have yeah. a cocktail. Yeah, yeah. Send everyone here on a Saturday. We, yeah. we we have our tours also on Saturday, so come through, and uh, or just have a cocktail, and hang out with us for a, a spell. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The more reviews, the easier we are to find. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow us on social media so you never miss any of our updates. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and always be sure to drink responsibly. 
there are quite literally thousands of distilleries, so we're just getting started. Stay tuned for more conversations with master distillers, distillery owners, mixologists, and even bar owners, and more. Cheers. Cheers.